Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. For a, for a secular society, it's, it's really difficult for us to get away from, from faith and religion. Uh, I mean, they want to say this is a secular culture we live in, that we live in this world that's, that's marked by hostility to the things of God. And we certainly can see that in any place we look around. In spite of that, when we watch, we still see vestiges of faith in so many different places. I, I think one of the places we see those, those little indicators of faith that still remain, I think it's in the sports world, uh, particularly. You see this happening so much in sports. Uh, I've got some things I want to show you on the screen. Our Auburn fans are going to remember this day. Uh, it's almost 10 years ago, but Auburn fans have got to have something to hold on to. And so, um, so this was almost 10 years ago. It was in 2013. It was the final seconds of the matchup between Auburn and the University of Georgia. All right, here we go. Fourth and 18 for the Tigers. Here's your ball game. Nick Marshall. Stands in, steps up, it's going to throw downfield, just a home run ball, and uh, it is tipped off, and Lewis caught it on the deflection, Lewis is going to score, Lewis is going to score, Lewis is going to score, touchdown over, touchdown over, a miracle in Jordan Hare, a miracle in Jordan Hare, 73 yards, and the Tigers, with 25 seconds to go, lead 43 to 38. I don't know if you heard what he said. There was a miracle at Jordan-Hare there, a miracle. It was a miracle. Actually, it was just a tip drill, but it was a miracle at Jordan-Hare and Auburn fans. What do you call that now? No, that's not what you call it. The prayer at Jordan-Hare, that's, that, that's what that's known as now uh, throughout all, all of sports history. The prayer at Jordan-Hare, and, and, the, and the announcer, of course, describes it as a miracle. That, um, and I've always thought it was interesting to describe it as a prayer because it implies that the Auburn fans have a better audience with the Lord than the Georgia fans do. Uh, and, and that somehow or another that their prayer was, was honored more than, uh, than, than the other group there. The next clip was actually from last night. The Arizona State Sun Devils upset the Arizona Wildcats. It was a Pac-10 game, so you all were probably well, very much in bed by the time this happened. I didn't watch it. I just saw it on my phone when I woke up this morning. Um, so I want you to watch this, but I want you to be sure to listen to the announcers. Just watch out for the baseball pass if you're Arizona. Follow makes it, two-point lead, three seconds left, no timeouts. Neal inbounds, Desmond Cambridge. Oh, he got it! He won it! Arizona State has done it! My goodness! Desmond Cambridge Jr. The Sun Devils have taken down number seven. But he got the ball in the right spot, turning up towards the towards half court, giving him some momentum to carry that ball towards the rim. So here we go. Watch. He rolls. He goes up the floor. Shot up in the air. Forget about the clock. That ball is good. Look at Bobby Hurley in the shot. All right, I had eyes from the time he let it go. <laughs> They've lost 10 of their last 11. 
I don't know if you could hear what he said, but he, it basically the gist of what he said was when they needed a prayer right there and, and the prayer was answered. And so there again, the, the, you know, God was clearly on the side of the sun devils, which is interesting because, because uh, I mean, sun devils. Um, but there again, you, you, you see these, these spiritual things that are just beneath the surface and just in the, in the language that, that we use. And we see this happen a lot. I mean, sometimes it's very overt. I think back to when DeMar Hamlin uh, collapsed on the field and, and the ESPN announcer just had led open prayer there for him on, on NFL Live. Sometimes it's much more covert. We look around and we see athletes during different parts of the game, you know, offering a, you know, credit to the Lord for the touchdown that they just scored. I mean, you see that kind of stuff happening all the time. But, but again, we're, we're secular, but just beneath the surface, you see these, these religious references. We think about holidays. Of course, the month of February is almost over, and that's scary to think that February is almost over. The only redeeming thing about that is February is a short month. But the, the big holiday in February, of course what? Valentine's Day. And we talk about love and romance and candy and flowers and all those sort of things. And, and I can assure you that, that the florist and the candy retailers and all those people aren't thinking about the namesake of Valentine's when they make money off of the day. But Valentine was an early Christian priest. Uh, that, that for the Catholics, it's, it's the celebration of, of St. Valentine. We get into March on Wednesday and March's big holiday is what? St. Patrick's Day. And we certainly don't celebrate St. Patrick's Day like we think that it's a celebration of, a, of an early Christian missionary because I don't think St. Patrick died the, the river's green and passed out on Guinness, uh, you know, in, during his day. But that's how we celebrate St. Patrick's Day for some reason, even though he was a, an early Christian missionary. And again, I don't think the people who are at the pubs are thinking too much about the Christian missionary named Patrick when they celebrate that day. We think about government. Uh, uh, here's, a, here's a picture of, of Joe Biden being sworn in on his family Bible. Um, most officials, when they take the oath of office, they don't make a big deal about it, but their hand is placed on a Bible. And, uh, and they're swearing in. They're, they're making the, the vow that, that as much as they take that word seriously, so they also take their vow seriously. You can keep your political commentary quiet regarding that statement. Uh, government buildings frequently have religious carvings. Here's the pediment of the Supreme Court building. You'll notice right there at the very peak of the pediment of the building is who? You might know Moses. Somebody said Moses. It's Moses. He's got, his, uh, one, he's got the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. He is sitting there very top, prominent. He's in that prominent position there. Again, that's carved into the, 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 the eve of the Supreme Court building. And so, again, you, you see these religious things that, are, that sometimes are blatant, sometimes they're right beneath the surface. Of course, entertainment, we see religious references in entertainment. Most recently, a performance at the Grammys made headlines, not because it worshipped anything holy, but because of devil worship. You didn't have to watch it. In fact, I would encourage you not to watch it. I'll even spare you imagery from the performance, but let's just say that it was overt Satanism. But I will show you what CBS said uh, regarding this performance. Here's a tweet that CBS put out. The, the guy person doing the performance tweeted that he was ready for it. He was getting excited about it. And CBS replied at the bottom there. They said, you can say that again. We are ready to worship. And if you saw anything about the performance, you know there was worship taking place there, but it certainly wasn't worship like we've enjoyed and been able to participate in today. 
And I don't really watch this show anymore. I remember watching it in the early seasons, uh, American Idol. And uh, again, Ryan Seacrest would talk about these incredible vocalists. And a lot of, I will say that something good came from American Idol. We've had a lot of really prominent Christian musicians who have uh, reached, reached, for lack of a better term, prominence as a result of their time on American Idol. But Ryan Seacrest would introduce these people and he would say, who's going to be our next American Idol? And again, we're, we're making a declaration there. And I don't think that the producer said, let's name this show something religious. But by virtue of the language that we're using, we're making religious statements about things. And we are, they think they're using figurative language. But I really think that in some cases, it's completely accurate. I appreciate how Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says it. He says that theology is always close to the headlines. You read the paper, you read whatever, whatever, wherever you get your news, and you will find that theology is always nearby. Not that every religious expression or every religious reference is one that is biblical or praiseworthy, but theology is always close to the headlines. And much of what we see lurking just beneath the headlines is actually idolatry and sin. But something that we need to pay very close attention to. We've been digging through 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We're about to finish chapter 1 of 1st Thessalonians today. A couple of weeks ago, we started this series. One of the things that, that I pointed out is that Thessalonica was a religious town, very much a religious city. And if you've missed anything, you can go back and listen to the previous messages where? In the Chat Valley app, right? You can get that app and you can go back and listen to what you've missed if you've been out. The city of Thessalonica was a crossroads of sea and land routes. And as a result of all of these people coming together, all sorts of different cultures and religious groups came together. And you had this melting pot of civilizations, much as you see in big cities today, where, where all sorts of different cultures and all sorts of different people come together. I mean, the big city of Chickamauga has got a Hindu mosque or a Hindu temple over here on the bypass. So, I mean, I mean you, know, you can imagine what a massive city like Thessalonica would have had. You could go stand in the harbor at Thessalonica, and you could look to the southwest. And in the southwest, about 50 miles in the distance, you could see Mount Olympus rising up in the distance. Again, stand right there on the harbor in Thessalonica, and there's Mount Olympus. In Greek mythology, Mount Olympus was, to believe, was believed to be the home of the 12 Olympians who were the principal gods of the Greek world, gods like Zeus and Athena and Apollo, just to mention some of them. That mountain was one of the most important religious sites, if not the most important religious site in the Greek, word, Greek world there. And there in Thessalonica, as they, as they lived and worked and did whatever they did under the shadow of this mountain, the city had shrines to Greek gods, to Egyptian gods, and who knows what, uh, what other kind of religious activity took place there. But one of the things we know about ancient pagan worship, it definitely wasn't God honoring. It may have been trying to worship a false god, but it definitely wasn't godly. Enter Paul with the gospel. And what Paul comes preaching is that all these other gods are dead. They're all dead. They don't have life. Paul comes preaching and says, let me introduce you to the one who conquered death. Let me introduce you to the, the, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all of these other gods that you're worshiping, they are dead. They are simply dead idols. And so the gospel comes along and it begins to deliver people from this lifestyle. And it represents a radical departure from the normal religious experience of that city. Because Christianity declares 
the simple but profound truth. Jesus is king, and the worship of anything else is just gross idolatry. And turning from the worship of idols to the worship of Jesus is one of the praiseworthy characteristics of this church that Paul gives us here in the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to read the last couple of verses here. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. The apostle says this, Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it teaches us and, and, and instructs us. Father, I pray you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and not the idols of our day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. Last week, we talked some about the reputation of this church. And Paul brags on this church because, because this church, the, the, the neighbors have heard about the faith of this church. This church is doing things right. This church, is, their reputation has spread. And we talked about how the odds for this church were really stacked against them. After all, they were founded out of persecution and trial when Paul was there. He didn't get to stay long with them. He didn't spend as long with them as he did with some of the other churches. And they lived in a, in a major city that was a hotbed of idolatry. For these Christians in, in Thessalonica, there were temptations at every corner for these people to turn back to idolatry, to turn back to the dead gods that they were delivered from. But that's not what happened for this church. In fact, we read here that they've done the exact opposite. They turned to God from the idols that surrounded them. They rejected the dead gods of their city to serve the living God that rescued them. This is, of course, a, a delightful thing. It's a good thing for this church. Now, we're prone to read this, and here we are. We're in 2023. We, we're smarter than anybody's ever been before. We've got more information. We know more than anybody else has ever known and we're prone to look at this and we're, we think, man, these poor unenlightened souls worshiping idols and doing things in pagan temples, these poor uneducated people, how, how, how sorry we feel for them. Who would devote themselves to such a worthless pursuit as worshiping some sort of, of idol? We're, we're far too smart for such a thing today, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're way too smart to go down this pathway, these, these poor un, uneducated people. Unfortunately, I would argue this, that our modern society is perhaps just as idolatrous, if not more so, than these ancient Greek civilizations ever were. And so today, I want us to work on identifying some of our American idols, if you will. But in order to begin to identify them, the first thing we need to understand is this, idolatry is always foolish. Idolatry is always foolish. And Paul speaks with absolute clarity here. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In no uncertain terms, Paul dismisses all the other potential of avenues of worship beyond worshiping the true and living God. All the other idols, all the other temples, all the other options, they're dead, they're lies, they are nothing like the Lord. And this is a comparison 
that's designed to shock us, to, to overwhelm our sensibilities. Why would we choose something that is dead over that which is true and living? You know, I think back to when my, my youngest son were, was little. Uh, he, he wouldn't eat anything. And it would drive me crazy because we would be sitting down at the dinner table and we would be having a, a delicious, delicious meal. I mean, things that we, we absolutely love, things that were nutritious and things that tasted good and things that were, were wonderful. And I would look at the things that he would not be willing to eat, but the stuff that he would eat was, was crazy. It's like, why would, you, why would you reject this which is good and tasty and, 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 and rich and, and, and just delightful? for a processed piece of chicken wrapped in a nugget. I mean, why would you turn down a steak to eat a, a, a fake piece of chicken? Why would you do that? But that's exactly what idolatry is. You're, you're rejecting that which is good and wholesome and right for something which is worthless and dead and, and not satisfying. And the Bible mocks this behavior. I love when the Bible mocks things. The prophet Isaiah has one of the most stunning rebukes of, of, of idolatry in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 44, the prophet talks about a man who uses half of a tree to make a fire. And on that fire, he's able to cook his dinner. He's able to keep himself warm. That tree he's able to use to, to better his life through food and warmth and those sort of things. But then he takes the other half of the tree and he fashions it into an idol. He bows down to it. He worships and he prays to it. And, and Isaiah says, you're literally worshiping the thing that the, the other half of the thing you burned and the half that you kept you're worshiping. And he says in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 19, no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? And again, the, the prophet is poking here. The prophet is, is, is mocking this behavior. He says he feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And the prophet says, how, how do you not have the sense to know that you're worshiping that which you used to cook your food on? How do you not have the sense to know that it's an absolute lie? The prophet Jeremiah also has a stern rebuke for the people pursuing idolatry. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11, Jeremiah says this, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not Prophet, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? In other words, you turn from that which is true and living and life-giving to that which is a lie, to that which is a deception, and then the, the prophet declares they've rejected fountains of living waters, which I love the fact that Jesus would later claim that for himself. And they've tried to replace the living water of the living God with busted wells that won't even hide a drop or hold a drop. And this is how the Bible 
treats idolatry. It's not a substitute. It doesn't even compare. Why would anyone choose that pathway when the alternative has been offered to them? Why would anyone choose to follow a dead idol when the Savior has conquered death and lives forever? Why would anyone go down that pathway when there's an amazing alternative that's been offered? And the answer here that we hear in these rebukes is that nobody would make that choice if they were in their right mind. But we're not in our right mind, are we? Because our minds are affected by sin. And the fact of the matter is, is that we do pursue those false gods. We do so regularly. We hunt for stagnant mud puddles when we are offered springs of living waters. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Which is why we need to be adept at identifying our idols. Hopefully you don't have any carved wooden statues in your house like the prophet was mocking. If we come by and catch you carving your firewood into statues worthy of worship, then we'll know we've got something to, to worry about there. But just because you don't have to carve wooden statues or things like that, it doesn't mean that you don't have idolatry. Again, look at verse 9. Paul praises the Thessalonians because they turned from idols. They turned from idols. This word that Paul uses is an interesting word because it, it means to redirect one's attention, to change one's point of, of interest or trust from one thing to another. So it, it, it's, it's not a, we talk about repentance, that repentance is that military term that means about face. But this is actually talking about one's gaze, one, one's attention, the thing that one is interested in. And so Paul here is talking about us, us turning from idols. That means at some point these Thessalon Thessalonians were trusting in idols, but at some point in time, they, they redirected their attention to the true and living God. The city in which they lived was full of things to look at, full of things to catch their attention. There were shrines and temples and all the accoutrements that went along with pagan idolatry. It was highly sexualized, and it was, it was everywhere. It would have been very difficult to live in this town and not be confronted with these images from the worship of these idols. Like going to the mall today. It's really hard to go to the mall and not be confronted with the images of our secular culture and the idolatry that's rampant there. But what's the gospel do? The gospel calls us as Christians to fix our gaze somewhere else. It's easy to look at all the idols. It's easy to look at all the things that are distracting us. But the gospel calls us to look elsewhere. And Paul praises the Thessalonians... Because they changed their attention. They changed their focus. They changed their gaze. I hear this, and I can't help but think about how easily we can be distracted from the true and living God towards the secular idolatry of our day. 
John Calvin once said that we may infer that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. Talking about a blacksmith shop, that, that the blacksmith shop forges out idols just like the blacksmith shop would forge out horseshoes and weapons and all those sort of things. He talks about the human mind, that the human mind is that perpetual forge constantly creating new points of idolatry. And therein lies our problem. It isn't that we have all these little statues to turn our attention to. Our problem is that we literally can turn anything into an idol. An idol is anything that captivates our gaze, that takes our attention, anything that defines our pursuits, anything that takes our attention away from the Lord. What do those idols look like? For some, substances can be sources of idolatry. Again, we think about addiction and those sort of things, but it doesn't always have to be illegal or controlling substances that become idolatry. Food can easily become an idol for somebody who struggles in that way. For some, relationships can become an idol. How many people are looking for their identity, their purpose in some kind of human relationship? I think about our young people in, in high school and college where, where there's a, a young man or a young woman that's looking to define themselves through the eyes of whatever relationship that they can pursue, and it leads down so many dark pathways. For some, the pursuit of some sort of image can be a controlling idol in their life. We live in this strange world today where people aren't satisfied with the identity with which they're created and they're pursuing other identities that aren't what they were created with. And they're trying to find and mold and shape some sort of identity that doesn't line up with the creator's intent for them because they're looking for fulfillment in that way. Still some, the pursuit of financial gain and security can easily become idolatrous if it captures our gaze. Again, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't work towards financial security. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't work for, for, for something to hand off to our, our, the next generation. I'm not suggesting that, but if that becomes the motivating factor, the controlling drive of our life, then we've allowed that thing, whatever that thing is, to become an idol in our lives. And that's what Calvin meant. If you can dream it, the human heart can idolize it. Doesn't matter. If you can dream it, the human heart can idolize it. And we must be able to recognize it because it can sneak into our lives unnoticed and take over without warning. We're even capable of taking good things and turning them into dead idols. How many Christian parents have turned their children into idols? They didn't mean to. They didn't have a kid and say, I've got a new idol to worship. Here we go. They didn't do that. But over the course of time, again, it wasn't sinister. It was a slow fade. But oftentimes, that's what our slip into idolatry looks like. It's not like falling off a cliff where we hit the bottom and say, oh, what happened? It's like a, it's like a gradual incline that, that takes us to the same destination. We eventually get to the bottom. Both pathways take us to the bottom. But there was one that got us there without us really even knowing that we were descending. Now, our problem is that we're frequently really good at recognizing this in other people's lives, but we don't do such a good job looking at our own lives. It's that uh, speck versus plank argument. I'm really good at finding your idol, but not so good at identifying my own. But whenever we identify those idols, we have to recognize them for what they are. They have captivated our gaze. They have fixed our attention. 
And the gospel tells us that we must turn our gaze from these pursuits and turn and serve the living and true God. We need to redirect our attention. Because ultimately we understand this, and the Thessalonians understood this, our hope in life and death is found in Jesus. The Thessalonians are praised because they turn from idols. It's certainly good. It's delightful that they turn from idols, but there's some really important words that show up here in verse 10. Uh, Verse 9, we begin, they, they turn from idols to serve the true and living God. Again, this is more than just intellectual acknowledgement. It's not enough for us to say, yeah, I know what the gospel says. The fact of the matter is, is that the gospel results in change. It results not only in changing the way we think, it results in changing the way that we act and what we do and how we serve and how we function. The gospel changes us from top down, all throughout us, our relationships, our work, all those sort of things. It's much more than just lip service here. There is actual service, actual work that's involved. People are not safe to sit, they're safe to serve. But then he talks about the fact that they're waiting on the Son. They're waiting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we get back to that term one more time, this, this idea of waiting. And again, this, this idea of waiting is not the impatient kind of waiting. We were coming back from, from uh, we went over to Scottsboro yesterday, and we were coming back down 24, and traffic. I hate traffic. I hate it. It is not an idol in my life. Maybe the hatred of traffic is an idol for me, but traffic is not an idol. I'll say that. And we're sitting in traffic, and I'm looking at the red line on the GPS, trying to evaluate how long that red line is. And, and I can tell you, I start getting impatient. I start swiping it, trying to see how far I've got to, how long I'm going to have to wait. And I knew I was going to be there for a while. And I was impatiently waiting, can this please hurry up? This is not the kind of waiting that we're talking about here, this impatient, would you hurry up, traffic jam kind of waiting. The waiting that we're reflecting on here is waiting with excitement, waiting with anticipation, waiting with eagerness. And I've never sat in a traffic jam and said, I can't wait till I get to the end. That's never happened. Waiting for the Lord, that should be an eagerness And I can't wait until Jesus shows up again. I can't wait until I can see him again. I can't wait until I can see my Savior face to face. But in the meantime, I've got work to do. I've got something I've got to be about. I've got to be busy about my father's business. But then there's also this recognition that we are being delivered. We're being delivered. Look at the last part of of verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When we get into the nitty-gritty of of these texts, sometimes it's, it's very important for us to even look at the tense of the word. You didn't come for an English lesson this morning, and that's our grammar lesson, but there's an important word, there's an important tense here because Paul says that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. He didn't say Jesus will deliver us from the wrath to come. It's very important. Why does it matter? 
Because it's an active, ongoing process. If you were in Christ today, he is actively delivering you from the wrath to come. He is working in you and on you at this moment, preparing you for what is to come. It is an active process. This isn't something that's going to happen in the future alone. It's happening in us right now. There is an ongoing preparation that is actively taking place in our lives. He who started a good work and you will bring it to completion. He is going to be working in in you and through you while you are waiting. When we look to this one true source of hope, the Lord Jesus Christ, then we understand that he is doing something in us today, that he is moving in us today, that he is working in us today, but it is not only for today, for it is also for tomorrow, and it is also for a time to come. And I think this is something that we sometimes get wrong about the Christian faith. We sometimes look at repentance as something that we do once that gets us in the club, and then we don't have to worry about it anymore. That if we repent, we're saved. But the truth of the matter is, is that repentance is something we're going to be doing for the rest of our lives until there's no more sin in us to repent from. As we learn about our sin, or, or even perhaps as we stumble into sin, maybe our gaze is fixed somewhere else for a moment or a season, we have to refix our attention on the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. The writer of Hebrews told us this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. He said that we are to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is not a, it is not a one-time thing. It is an ongoing active thing that we will be doing as we go through our Christian life. We must be repenting as we go. At the same time, we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We must continue to run our race. We must recognize that Jesus is working in us and he is delivering us as an ongoing process for the duration of our Christian lives. We don't get seasons to take a break. The gospel that saved the Thessalonians and the gospel that saves us is not a flash-in-the-pan conversion, but a long walk that demands patience and perseverance. It will face setbacks and sin, but even as it does, we must refix our gaze on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This week, I think we all probably are aware, this is the year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. And I was reading some articles, some, some things, just thinking back over the year, and one of the things I was reading about is how Russian factories have gone into war footing to try to prepare for the next stage of this, uh, of, of whatever you want to call this. And they were talking about how these Russian factories that used to make clothes for the people to buy at the mall and food to buy at the grocery store, that these factories are now converting themselves into war machines where they're able to produce uniforms for the military and food for the military. They're converting their factories in order to try to fuel the war. 
And we've seen this in our own history as well. We go back to things like in World War II where, where the United States fired up its war machine, where those factories that used to make cars and trucks were converted into making tanks and Jeeps for the military. And, and we talk about how those, those textile industries, even like we've had around here, where those textile mills that made socks for consumers started making socks for, for the military. And we, we understand how that works, and we've seen that in our own history. But I think about this, that if the human heart in its natural state is a factory that makes idols, then it may be time for us to change its orientation, to, to stop its tendency to create those idols. And it may be that we need to recognize the need to go into a wartime footing with our very own souls because we understand that we are engaged in a very real, very spiritual battle. It's something we wake up every day understanding that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against those spiritual powers of darkness that are at work in our world today. There is a fight that is taking place in our world today for the souls of man. And as long as we understand that there is a battle that is being fought, that there is a war that is being waged, then if we have a factory within us that is prone to create idols, then by the Holy Spirit's power in our life, may that factory be converted to create those affections for the glory of God. And in doing so, may our affections stay fixed on Jesus and not those false, dead idols. Instead of creating those things which are so prone to distract us from God, may we instead learn to craft those affections for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There are some of you here today that your heart has created a web of idols that is thick. And you look around at your life and you say, my life is characterized not by affections for the Lord, but affections for other things. I've created idols out of my children. I've created idols out of my relationships. I've created idols out of my career. I've created idols out of my finances. I've created idols out of my hobbies. I've created idols out of the sports on television. I've created idols out of this and idols out of that. And you look and you say, I've not really turned my gaze towards the Lord. Today, I'd love to give you an opportunity to do what the Thessalonians are praised here for, to turn from those dead, lifeless idols, to stop looking for mud puddles and broken cisterns, and turn and look to the creator God of the universe who loves you so much that he sent his son to save you from your sin and put to death your idols. To trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you have an opportunity in just a moment if you'd like to take advantage of that. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, I thank you for the clarity with which your word speaks and how it challenges us to do business with those things in our hearts that are not of you. Father, we would acknowledge today the idols in our lives. And God, even in this moment of prayer, may we confess those things which attract our gaze and refocus our attention upon the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we confess today 
that we are prone to make idols out of sinister things. But God, our hearts are so wicked that we're inclined to make idols out of things that are, are good and good for us. But an idol doesn't have to be a, a demonic representation. An idol can be something, anything, that places our allegiance higher than our allegiance to Jesus. And so though God, I dare say that we don't have any carved wooden statues in our home that we pray to or that we bow down to. We do recognize that we have created idols that we can't see or we can't touch. But are distracting nonetheless. And so God, we would pray that you would search our hearts and you would show us those things which have attracted our attention that are not of you. And we would recognize them for what they are. And Lord, for those in the room today, if they're honest in the quiet of this moment, they look around their lives and they see affections for so many things. but no affection for the person of Christ. In this moment of response, may they turn from those dead, lifeless, little G-gods and turn to Jesus. We pray these things in the name of the only one, the only living God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.